To find out more about the different types of advocacy and how an advocate can help, visit the VoiceAbility website, voiceability.org, or follow VoiceAbility on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Legal Wolf podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Karis, who is an independent mental health advocate. Good afternoon, Karis. Good afternoon, Steve. So, first of all, just for the listeners, would you be able to outline your background and the route to becoming an independent mental health advocate? Certainly, yes. Um, well, I've been working as an independent mental health advocate or advocacy in general for the last five and a bit years yeah. um, with the same company, with Voiceability, um, originally based in Birmingham, but now cover Dudley. Um, but I got into the role almost by accident, I'd like to say. Um, I worked previously as a support worker for people with uh, enduring mental health conditions in the community. Okay. And prior to that, I was also uh, I completed a degree in psychology. So it was more the mental health route that I was interested in. I did find that as a support worker, didn't really have much sway, if you like. Um, so I was looking for something a bit more legal, legally binding, I suppose is the word, um, yeah. a bit more official. So hence why I went with um, with voiceability in the advocacy role. Okay. And just for the listeners, how would you define an IMHA? Well, IMHA says independent mental health advocacy. It's a statutory advocacy role. So that means that it's a legal requirement for um but in part to be available to people. And the those who are eligible are people that are detained under the Mental Health Act, either in hospital or in the community. And it's to support people with their rights under the Mental Health Act and to help write any queries or questions they may have regarding their admission or section. Okay. Would you get involved if, for instance, there was a complaint that the patient wanted to make on the ward or a safeguarding referral? Certainly, yeah. I mean, as far as complaints go, we wouldn't make the complaint on behalf of that person yeah. unless they were unable to, what they call instruct us, so unable to tell us exactly what the ins and outs of it are. We do support people with complaints um, to the things like the Service Experience Desk, which is in the Dudley Trust, um, or we also help them to make NHS complaints if needed. Um, but it's more about sort of giving them the options, how to word things, how to get um, their points across, the process, that kind of thing. But we don't actually write it for them. Um, in regards to safeguarding, yes, it's a big part of our role um, because we want to obviously ensure that people who are detained are able to be safe on the wards. It's a very can be a very vulnerable position to be in. Yeah. Um, and as an independent person, we do need to make sure that no abuse is happening to anybody whilst they're either on the wards or in the community. Um, the way that we work in voiceability is that the person would disclose a safeguarding concern such as financial abuse or um, sort of physical abuse on, on, on the ward or in the community, we would then make that alert to the local authority and they would then determine and do the investigation on behalf of the person. And our role 
with the safeguarding is to try and make sure that that person, you know, the process is as person-centred as possible and they that they are informed and made aware of what's happening during that safeguarding process. Okay. And in terms of what else your role involves, um, would you be able to elaborate on other areas that you would be able to help a patient with? Yeah, I mean, the main the main purpose of our role, I suppose, is to support people to navigate things whilst they're um, in, you know, in hospital or under a mental health section of the community. Yeah. That that person does have um, with, with, within the section. So, yes, it's about ensuring that they navigate the process whilst they're being admitted. So it can be very confusing for people um, under a mental health section because there are only certain things that they're able to do under that under the Mental Health Act. Um, so it's about supporting them to understand what those rights are, what they can and can't do under the Mental Health Act uh, and under that section. So, for example, if they disagreed with being under a mental health section and they wish to appeal um, the, that decision, then we can support them to apply for either a mental health tribunal yeah. Um, which is an independent panel of people, uh, a professional, sorry, that can look at the case, if you like, and um, see if that, that person does fit the criteria to be sectioned. It's a safeguard for patients because it means it's not just their psychiatrist that is making that you know is making that decision for them to stay in hospital. Yeah. Um, they also can apply for things like a manager's hearing, which is very similar to a tribunal. Um, and they've also got things like nearest relative rights, where their nearest relative can uh, write to their doctor and ask them to be discharged. But it's also about making sure that person's voice is heard, because I often find for people who are in hospital, especially at ward reviews, it can be quite a daunting prospect to, first of all, they're having to wait to be seen by a doctor, and then they're escorted into a room with maybe coming up to half a dozen other professionals, obviously less during these strange times, but yeah. um, they're sort of the focus of the... Uh, it's almost like an interview, I suppose, and it can be quite daunting because it's ang- their anxiety levels are raised anyway. Um, yeah. We often find as advocates that it's useful for us to support that person to prepare for their ward review, make sure they know what questions they wish to ask their consultant, because they only really get a chance to speak to that consultant once a week. Uh, and it's to try and support them to be focused during that meeting because, again, a bit like a GP appointment, you've only got 10, 15 minutes normally to, to talk to your consultant and anybody else in the room. Yeah. So, again, we support them to make sure that they get their point across or get the answers to the questions that they want. Um, other things that we do is we can speak to professionals with the person's consent yeah. uh, regarding things in the community. Um, maybe discharge, maybe looking at accommodation. Uh, we can raise, challenge things when people are suffering with side effects from medication to challenge that to say, you know, this person is obviously unwell from the medication you're giving them. Are there any alternatives? Does it need to be given this way? And it's sort of giving that person options and sometimes the consequences of those options. Uh, which sounds a bit harsh, but um, for example, that person may decide that they wish to have something called Section 17 leave, which means that the consultant um, gives them permission to leave the the hospital for a certain amount of time. And they may have had several incidents prior to to this, which has meant that they've not been able to have leave. So it's about explaining to them that if they are granted leave, 
that's fine. But if they decide to abscond and not return to the ward, then they have that consequence of then maybe not being given leave again. So again, it's, it's explaining a lot of the professional um, sort of wording and how things work. And it's also somebody independent to talk to as well. We tend to find that people, even though everything we talk about is confidential, yeah. people do like, patients like to talk to us because they feel that they can trust us because we haven't got, um, not an ulterior motive, but, you know, we're, we're there just for them rather than their best interests. Yes. And talking of COVID, how has COVID affected your role well, in the, the start of this horrendous nightmare we call coronavirus, um, the start last year when we went into the first lockdown, um, everything stopped, basically. We, VoiceAbility, took the um, stand that we were gonna, or everybody was going to work from home, regardless of what advocacy they were involved in, um, just purely because of safety more than anything else, yeah. um, to stop the spread of the virus. Um, so we were then trying to do everything remotely. Um, with awards uh, it, it did pose a lot of issues um, at first that I, I don't think the awards you can't really blame them weren't really prepared for anything like this so yeah. unfortunately at Bushyfields Hospital they don't have um, patient sort of phones pay phones and stuff like they do in other hospitals so the wards in the end managed to procure, procure some um, mobile phones for the patient use so that was good um, so it meant that a lot of the stuff I was doing was via by the telephone. We did try other methods such as um, remote, uh, sorry, um, MS Teams, Microsoft Teams, video calls, that kind of thing. But we'd often find that the reception, unfortunately, at the hospital is very poor, the Wi-Fi reception. So we'd we'd have fun and games trying to, um, to have conversations with people like yeah. that. But it did work. When it did work, it worked really well. Um, and it was the best best alternative, I suppose, to, to actually being there in person. Um, we did start to do face-to-face visits. Um, well, I did anyway, back in June, end of June, beginning of July last year. Um, and we undertake, we're still doing it now, obviously, but we, we have to undertake a risk assessment yeah. um, to see whether, you know, there, if there's anybody positive with coronavirus on that ward, then we don't, we don't enter that ward. Um, there are precautions in place for us, such as there's full PPE available, so face mask, glove, aprons, hand sanitizer, which the ward system is that the, the visitor would then go into the ward, into the um, uh, airlock, I suppose you call it, and don the PPE and the hand sanitizer one way, and then you walk through the ward and then you take it off uh, at the other end, de- you know, sanitise again and then leave yeah. the ward. So it's sort of a one way in, one way out kind of system, which is good. Um, the clients, it, it has been difficult for them because a lot of them, if they are unwell at that time, don't can't comprehend the social distancing regulations. Yeah. Um, so it's up to us really to protect ourselves and protect them by trying to maintain as much social distance as we can. And making sure that I, don't, I mean the wards are offering hand sanitizer and masks to all of the the clients as well, so they're doing their bit. But it has been a struggle to say the least, even with doing face to face visits. Yeah, and and I think all professionals would be in agreement with that because it raises challenges for 
like me being a solicitor, it raises challenges for social workers, for nurses in particular being there on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And I imagine it raises certain challenges for the doctors as well, because I imagine some of the doctors are in the vulnerable category. Oh, so, indeed, yeah. yeah. I mean, sorry, Steve. I'd say at the start as well, there was ward reviews were taking place, well, right up until, I want to say, probably the middle of last year. Yeah. Ward, all ward reviews were done remotely with the consultant. Um, but, again, it, when somebody is unwell, it's not not ideal for them to be... They can't comprehend the computer no. at the end of the day. It's not got the same effect, but it has been a struggle for, I think, every single professional involved in, well, not just mental health, but, you know, but from, from my side, it has been very difficult for everybody. Yeah. And what kind of scenarios or issues does an IMHA come across most frequently? I would say discharge is number one normally. Yeah. Um, so people that obviously don't agree, um, which, you know, uh, looking at it from an outside point of view, you probably agree with them, uh, see their point of view, that they don't want to be detained in hospital. They don't believe that they need to be there. So, again, it's, you know, supporting uh, supporting them to challenge that decision, to apply for, um, for an appeal, that kind of thing, explaining what routes there are. Yeah. I would say probably leave is another big one. Um, again, purely because that person is detained in a building, you know, and they want to have the same freedoms as everybody else. Um, so leave can be something that's a big issue for people. Um, medications um, is is a big issue. Um, either that that person doesn't want to take medication, which is their choice at the end of the day, it's their opinion, um, or that they're getting side effects from it. Um, we quite often find that a lot of medications, like any physical health medications, have side effects. So it does take that person's body a while to get used to it as well. It can be quite upsetting for that person to be very tired all the time, which tends to be a sedative effect. It is a big a big side effect of, um, of mental health medication. Um, I'd say as well... Ward reviews are the, 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 the last sort of big one that we do because yeah. a lot of people want to have moral support if they can um, during that ward review process because, as I said before, it, it is anxiety-provoking. It is something that can distress quite a few people and they forget what they want to say or they forget what's been said during the review. So I wouldn't say we're secretaries or anything like that, but we support that person to, you know, so we prompt them if they sort of say, is there anything else you want to add? We sort of go, oh, yes, you've forgotten to say this, that and the other. And it's making sure that they're heard, really, in that, within that meeting. Yeah. And in terms of the Section 17 leave point, since mm. COVID has been with us for the last 10 months, are clinicians still granting Section 17 leave or, or has there been a change in their approach to the use of Section 17 leave? There has been a change. I mean, I can only speak for the Dudley area because yeah. obviously that's where I'm based. Yeah. Um, it's changed quite a few times. I mean, the general rule at first was no leave which is completely understandable because they wanted to curb the, the spread of this virus. Um, however, now they have a system where 
um, people are admitted into a certain ward and then they are coronavirus tested, swapped, and then kept there for, I think it's three days, and then swapped again, swapped again, sorry. And if both tests come back negative, then they're put into, they're transferred to whichever ward is appropriate for them. Um, in regards to the leave side of it, they are doing leave in the grounds of the hospital, dependent on whether that person needs to be escorted by staff. Um, but they're not doing any... I suppose also, sorry, Steve, it's changed again since the third lockdown where they're saying to people, you know, we are, unless you really, really need something in an emergency, we're advising you not to leave the grounds to be able to go out for an hour or so to, you know, to go to the local shop, that kind of thing, because again, they don't want to bring the virus back again. Um, but there's been different sort of stages throughout this pandemic. I mean, some of the wards were allowing. Uh, people to go on leave for four hours at one stage. I think that was when wow. the pandemic was more under control. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of, you know, I think it was August sort of time, end of July, August. And then, since obviously the spread has gotten worse, they've then said we're only going to allow people leave if they're going on overnight leave with a view to be discharged. Yeah. So they're, they're trying to do, I can understand it, they're trying to do their best for both the, the wards, the other patients that are there, and also for the patients who want to want to go and leave as well. It's a very tricky balancing act at the moment. Yes, absolutely. Um, what do you feel are the key skills in order to become an IMHA? I think it's not... I say it is more skills-based than qualification-based. I think that you have to have a the kind of personality where you are able to, you're not judgmental, yeah. and you can take whatever anybody says to you and not be offended. I think that's a, I mean, not face-to-face, unless they're sort of, how can I put it, um, unless they mean it, if you know what I mean. You've got to yeah. be able to take things with a pinch of salt. And I think you've got to be very a very calm person and not reactive, um, because obviously being a reactive, emotionally reactive person is not good when you are working with people that maybe distress themselves. Yeah. Um, I think having an open mind and just being able to talk to anybody and everybody, being able to just have a dialogue with with people, I think is is very important in this role as well. Um, you've got to be careful of your own mental health because obviously you're working with people, yeah. as I said, that can be quite distressed. Um, and I think as, a, as an advocate, you have to be mindful that you don't give too much of yourself. Mm-hmm. But um, in general, I think it's more about the, the aptitude that you have rather than sort of, you know, say, qualifications. Yeah. And finally, if people who've been listening to this want to become an IMHAR, how do you go about becoming one? Well, your best bet is to go on to the the larger providers' websites, such as Voiceability. Um, there are obviously other providers, uh, such as Power, um, in the local area. And your best bet is to go onto their websites and look at the um, sorry, look at the the job vacancies. Um, I mean, to be an IMHAR, you do have to have some training. Um, but it's more on the job training, almost like an MVQ. 
Um, we call them IAQs. It's an independent advocacy qualification. Okay. Um, but you don't necessarily need to have that qualification prior to applying for a position as an advocate, as a mental health advocate, sorry. Okay, so you can get that qualification as you're learning the role of a mental health advocate? Yes, I mean, you do need to have experience, not necessarily in advocacy, um, but you do need to have some kind of experience working with vulnerable adults uh, or children. Um, I mean, a lot of the the parties that I, sorry, my my colleagues that um, I worked with previously have come from all sorts of different backgrounds, but they've all been in sort of health and social care. So we've had people that have previously been social workers, um, okay. or play therapists, that kind of thing, where they've been working with, with vulnerable. So they've got that, as I said, that attitude uh, to be able to, to do the job in the first place. Yes. Well, thank you for taking time out to be part of this podcast. Um, it has been very insightful, and I hope the listeners think it as, as well. Thank you for joining me, Caris. No, thank you, Steve. And that concludes today's episode with the brilliant Caris Edwards on the Legal Wolf podcast. Please, if you liked the episode, leave a review on Apple and like the Legal Wolf LinkedIn page to stay up to date with the most recent episodes. Thank you.